Good morning, class. For today's history lesson, we're going to talk about someone very important. The President of the United States of America. Now, I'm sure a lot of your parents have told you that maybe one day you'll grow up to be the president. I want to let you know right now that that is a lie. Not one of you in this class will ever be president. Good morning, Vietnam! And welcome to the 10th episode of the Almost Presidents podcast. I'm Ryan. And I'm Kevin. And our listeners on their morning commutes are definitely awake now, so you're welcome for that. And this is our monthly podcast where we talk about American presidential politics through the lens of the loser. So aside from blowing your eardrums out, if you can still hear me, Kevin, how are things going with you? Things are going good. It is the holidays here, or I guess they just passed. And I am definitely one of those people who shops last minute, super last minute. So I scrambled around on the 23rd and even the 24th trying to get some last minute things. And, you know, I think everything turned out good. I think I actually did a decent job gift giving this year. I mean, I love the Teddy Roosevelt finger puppet that you got for me. Yeah. I might have been a little bit misleading on our holiday podcast about getting you a Trump NFT for that. I apologize. Although I will I was disappointed say, about that one. But. I will say that if you checked our email recently, we did get a letter of interest from Trump's NFT people about some of the designs that we proposed on our holiday fun show. So I definitely recommend that you go back and listen to that episode if you haven't already, because we came up with some good ones and good enough to raise the eyebrows of the, of the people who are actually making these darn things. So that is exciting. Yeah, definitely check out that episode if you didn't. Uh, we also took the time to make some recommendations for a Santa Claus presidential cabinet. So if uh, you know the big man in the North Pole is ever deciding to run for office, feel free to take those recommendations. Yeah, and we had a lot of disagreements, which just shows that in the race towards 2024, as you and I look to nominate candidates, this isn't over. I'm, I'm not done. I'm, I'm going to be coming at you with all I got in 2024, nominating bigger, badder, and stronger candidates, and I expect you to do the same. Yep, same, same here. So, but other than that, you haven't seen me yet. So I, and this is a fantastic thing to talk about on an audio medium. But my hair, I I went with a two for a buzz cut. It was finally time. Yeah, my man. hair was getting too sloppy, and so I'm walking around just feeling bald. I haven't gotten my hair cut this short since college. So as as we're say, recording you must this, be freezing. Yeah, I, I even wear a winter hat around the apartment. It, it's This is going to take some getting used to, but I think it was the right move because my hair was getting too sloppy and I don't like to spend too much on haircuts, especially because they are getting a lot more expensive with inflation. I spent $22 plus a tip for this haircut, but I thought she did a great job and I just got to learn to do a buzz cut myself because that's what I do. I buzz it two times a year and that's that's my hair care, so... Yeah, I was going to say, if you just buzz it, you should just do it yourself. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's just, it's it's the finer details that can be tough. Rounding out the back. Um, okay. Cutting along the the perimeter of like your, your, your bangs and stuff like that and kind of lining up your sideburns. Those are the things where you really need a little bit of expertise, but I should definitely find someone that's not going to charge me $22 plus tip. Yeah. But uh, my ears are cold, but I think that they're going to get a lot warmer because today we are going to take you to Vietnam. So today we'll be diving into part 10 of a multi-part series on Bobby Kennedy's historic 1968 run for the president. 
As you know, if you haven't checked out the previous episodes in the series and you want to go back to the beginning of the story, feel free to put this on pause and go and check those out. We'll be right here when you get back. But as for all of you here for the next installment in our series, let's go ahead and get started. And as we do get into this episode, I just think it's it's kind of funny, Kevin, because I know that we had a talk as we were kind of getting ready to start a podcast at all that a lot of the military history parts, you know, you, you weren't so interested in. That's not yeah. that's not really a part of history that you're interested in. And yeah. uh, listeners, this is a script that Kevin, you wrote. So it's kind yeah. of kind of funny. Yeah, li- so <laughs> listeners may go after me for it, but military history absolutely bores me to tears. Which is so but, ironic because I'm so intrigued by it. Yeah, yeah, and I, you know, I, I can see that it's a, you know, a fa- I can see why it would be fascinating for people. But, but I, I think what I'm interested in it in in a lot of ways is like things that are really chaotic, and Vietnam, as we'll see, and as most of our listeners probably know, is about as chaotic as it gets. Yeah. So, listeners, if you just want to give us a drum roll, and uh, we will cue the chaos. All right. So. For those of you that have stuck with us throughout this inaugural series of our podcast, first of all, thank you. And second, you may have been wondering when we're actually going to get to the election. So stick with us for just one more episode here because we are about to plunge you into the disaster that is the year 1968 and the election of 1968. But before we do that, we are going to sidetrack to talk about something that we would really be failing you if we didn't talk to you about, because it is simply the central issue of the 1968 election. And as we already talked about at the beginning, that issue is the war in Vietnam. So today we're just going to devote the whole episode to catching you guys up on what's been going on in Vietnam since you last heard us talk about it. And we'll also just fill you in on where all of this went so horribly wrong, if it wasn't horribly wrong already. So let's get started. The Vietnam War is often sort of glibly referred to as Johnson's War, and in light of what happened in Vietnam, this term is more or less a smear of Johnson's legacy. That said, while it's not entirely accurate, it's a pretty fair characterization. While previous presidents tried to walk this dangerous line by defending the DM government without risking full-scale American involvement, LBJ just threw the book at them. He drastically escalated the number of troops, radically changing the nature of the war. And just if we can jump back a few episodes in case anybody forgot, DM was of course the president that was kind of installed by the American government to kind of keep the South right. democratic, essentially. Yeah, so he was the, uh, I mean, not so much democratic, but he was he was the uh, dictator that we were supporting over there who was highly unpopular. He was supported by sort of the Catholic minority in Vietnam and not very well liked by the largely Buddhist and rural majority. You know, famously, as we talked about, um, and as the cover of the Rage Against the Machine album shows, famously a monk burnt himself alive in protest at the DM government. And so, yeah, previous presidents sort of walked the line. They defended his government, but they didn't want to fully get America involved, whereas LBJ really just got us in there. Like previous presidents, Johnson was determined not to lose the war. Every president since Truman had dreaded the notion of a small Southeast Asian country going the way of China and becoming a communist country like China had done. But none of those presidents had resisted this with quite the tenacity that LBJ did. Other presidents had uttered the phrase, I'm not going to lose Vietnam, much like Johnson, but unlike his predecessors, 
Johnson never loses. At the end of 1963, there were 17,000 military advisors in Vietnam. A year later, at the end of 1964, there were 23,000. By the end of 1965, after there was an attack on an American base, there were 184,000. And by the end of 1966, that number was 450,000. And in early 1968, more than 500,000 military personnel were in Vietnam. So this was escalating quickly. And what had once been referred to as a conflict was now a full-scale war. And that small country in Southeast Asia, which most Americans at the time probably couldn't point to on a map, would become a defining event for a generation. Now, the events in the Tonkin Gulf are often identified as the spark that led to the drastic escalation of American engagement in the war. The USS Maddox, stationed in the Gulf of Tonkin, received an intelligence report on August 2nd of 1964, indicating that the North Vietnamese had dispatched three patrol boats to attack the ship. The USS Maddox decided against fleeing to avoid a conflict, and they were able to fend off the three patrol boats with the help of a few fighter jets. Johnson sent a second destroyer, the Sea Turner Joy, to join the Maddox in case another attack occurred. And sure enough, on August 4th, both ships received intelligence suggesting that the North Vietnamese would attack again. This time, both ships decided to leave the Gulf and go out to sea to avoid conflict. But around 9 o'clock at night, the Maddox reported seeing unidentified vessels in pursuit. Multiple torpedo attacks were reported, as well as automatic gunfire. The ships returned fire on the enemy and engaged in high-speed maneuvers designed to avoid the attack. Both ships wound up surviving the attack and avoided destruction. In the wake of these events, Johnson called on Congress to authorize him to use, quote, all necessary measures, unquote, to get things under control in the region. The resolution passed almost unanimously. No one voted against it in the House, and only two opposed it in the Senate. So while the Vietnam War would become Johnson's war years later, in the summer of 1964, it was essentially everyone's war. Everyone voted for it, and it seems virtually every American supported the war. It would take years for Americans to realize what a strategic error they had made. But despite the tremendous consequences of the events that took place in the Gulf of Tonkin, it seems that nothing actually occurred there other than an embarrassing error. No damage was done to the ships, no one was killed, no one was even injured. One of the destroyer's commanders reported to Defense Secretary Robert McNamara at the time that they couldn't determine for sure that the enemy had fired torpedoes at all. It might have just been blips on a radar screen during a storm that were overinterpreted by overly zealous and likely frightened operators as something catastrophic, something taking place that the enemy was trying to do to them. Navy Commander James Stockdale, who had overseen air defense of the Maddox, went so far as to suggest that the enemy wasn't even there that night, saying, quote, there was nothing there but black water and American firepower. Many years later, in 1995, McNamara met with the Vietnamese People's Army General, Vo Nguyen Giap, to ask what had happened that night, to which Giap responded, Absolutely nothing. But regardless, both Johnson and McNamara were adhering to the well-known political maxim of never letting a good crisis go to waste. Despite the dubiousness of the underlying events, which McNamara and Johnson were at least partially aware of at the time, They felt as though they needed to use this opportunity to show the Vietnamese and their critics at home that they were not going to be soft on Vietnam. But the sharpest escalation of the war wouldn't occur until February of 1965. On February 6th, an American airbase at 
Pleiku, I believe I got that right, I looked it up, in South Vietnam was attacked by Viet Cong forces, killing eight American soldiers and destroying several helicopters as well as a transport plane. And this was just the pretext that Johnson and the Hawks and his administration needed to justify an escalation in the war. Starting in March, a sustained campaign began consisting of three years of bombings on specific targets in North Vietnam, and LBJ and his advisors, such as McNamara, as well as the Secretary of State Dean Rusk, would meet up every Tuesday for lunch, during which time they'd select bombing targets, which just seems like a fantastic way to spend your lunch just talking about who you're going to bomb the shit out of, but that's what they did. As the situation was deteriorating, McNamara wrote a memo, which has proven to be a defining document of the conflict. Because in this memo, what he's going to do is he's going to lay out three options for the future of the war. The first being to cut our losses and withdraw. The second, continue at about the present level that we're going. And the third, to expand promptly and substantially the U.S. pressure being put on North Vietnam. McNamara rejected the second option because he saw it as kicking the can down the road. Eventually, he thought we'd have to choose one way or the other to essentially shit or get off the pot. But what makes the memo interesting is his reasons for rejecting this first option. Withdrawal was out of the question for McNamara because it would be, quote, humiliating to the United States and very damaging to our future effectiveness on the world scene. So that essentially just leaves us with one option, which according to the memo is to expand promptly and substantially the U.S. pressure that's being put on North Vietnam. So this statement lays out essentially what the prevailing logic in Vietnam is going to be for the years to come. And above all else, the U.S. must avoid, according to McNamara, humiliation, because that would apparently damage our credibility on the world stage. Major escalation now would bring about victory in the long run. That was the prevailing logic. McNamara's memo went on to recommend a drastic expansion of troops in Vietnam, and he recommended that President Johnson declare a national emergency and hike taxes to pay for the war. He would clearly and emphatically tell Congress and the country that they were about to plunge into a war in an enormous, headstrong way to prevent a long and drawn-out conflict in the long run. So if we go in there and we kick a ton of ass and we pour in all of our resources now, that'll make it so that we don't have to draw this thing out for a long period of time. That was what he was thinking, or at least what he was saying. And Johnson took these recommendations to heart, but he decided to conceal all of the underlying logic from the American people in the hopes that it might protect his reputation and the great society programs that he was fighting for domestically. He announced a stepping up of draft programs on July 28th that would ship off a total of 50,000 men, and in the privacy of his own thoughts, he committed himself to 75,000 more by the end of the year. Doubts about this drastic escalation crept in almost immediately amongst even its most fervent advocates. As early as December of 1965, McNamara confessed in a conversation with Johnson that he doubted that the American public would support the war long enough to see it through to the conclusion he wanted. To which Johnson replied, then no matter what we do in the military field, there is no sure victory? That's right, McNamara replied, we have been too optimistic, which is the understatement of the year. (laughs) McGeorge Bundy, another high-ranking official, left the administration during the following year, and there were some other officials who just never really seemed to question the mission. General Westmoreland, for one, Secretary of State Dean Rusk, 
and National Security Advisor Walt Rustow. All of these guys consistently encouraged escalation despite the rising conflict without any noticeable progress. Attempts at negotiations were made now and then, but they rarely went anywhere. Ho Chi Minh insisted that any settlement must acknowledge the program of the NLF in the South, which would mean participation of NLF in a coalition government in the South, which was unacceptable to the U.S., who would view it as a communist takeover. And just to sort of like remind our listeners, the NLF was the National Liberation Front, um, which was kind of like the forces associated with Ho Chi Minh in the South. Oftentimes, they're also called the Viet Cong, which is probably what listeners will know them as. Due to the failure of negotiations, settling of the conflict was left to the soldiers. These soldiers came disproportionately from poor and working class backgrounds. College students received deferments until mid-1968, and so the soldiers that were drafted were often kids with no collegiate aspirations taken straight out of high school. As such, they were disproportionately young. The average age of a soldier in World War II was 27, while in Vietnam, the average age was only 19. The war that these young men were fighting was also a particularly terrifying one. The battle lines weren't always clear, neither were the goals and objectives, and the guerrilla tactics of the enemy made for the stuff of nightmares. Already, you can probably see why morale might not be high amongst these young soldiers who were expected to fight communism in Vietnam. But the way the military organized itself this time around made matters even worse. American Marines in Vietnam typically served 13-month terms, after which someone else would come to replace them. Earlier wars were fought by units that stuck together through the duration of the war. The members of these units formed inextricable bonds with one another that often led them to even go so far as to die for one another. In Vietnam, it was hard to form this sort of camaraderie with your fellow soldiers because you just weren't there for that long with the same people. If soldiers suffered weak bonds to each other, they suffered even weaker bonds to the officers who oversaw them. Officers served six-month tours in combat, during which time they rarely built rapport with their units, preferring instead to remain in the comparatively lavish base areas. And later on, what would become known as fragging would become a serious problem, which was when soldiers would wound or kill their own officers because of the, how unpopular the war was. And there's this great documentary that, at least at the time that we're recording this, is on Netflix called Sir No Sir. And it's about just what Kevin's talking about here, which is how when the war grew unpopular, the GIs turned against the officers, the enlisted men turned against the officers. And would not only do things like this fragging, you know, throwing grenades into the tent of the officers to kill them, but they would accept court martials that would wind up putting them in prison in bulk because they refused to follow orders and fight a war that they thought was pointless and was unwinnable. Right. So as Ryan said, there's this disconnect between officer and soldier. And as a result, the soldiers don't really understand what they're actually fighting for. To them, the people on the front lines... The war seemed just as violent and utterly pointless as it did to the anti-war activists back home. A harrowing account of this comes from Marine Lieutenant William Broyles, who wrote, quote, For years we disposed of the enemy dead like so much garbage. We stuck cigarettes in the mouths of corpses, put Playboy magazines in their hands, cut off their ears to wear around our necks. We incinerated them with napalm, atomized them with B-52 strikes, 
shoved them out at the doors of helicopters above the South China Sea. In the process, did we take down their dog tag numbers and catalog them? Do an accounting? Forget it. All we did was count. Count bodies. Count dead human beings. Count the sons and fathers and brothers. The daughters and mothers and sisters of real human beings. That was our fundamental military strategy. Body count. And the count kept going up and up. Unquote. But if we're to believe the oft-stated theory about the Vietnam War, then neither Lyndon B. Johnson, nor his administration, nor even these soldiers were responsible for U.S. failure in Vietnam. No, the war was not lost in the bush, but in the living rooms of ordinary Americans. That is to say, the media was what turned Americans against the war. But this is a little misleading, and it is all too often cited by self-important journalists who credit themselves for ending the war, as well as war hawks who want to blame the sensationalist media for turning Americans against what was otherwise a totally wholesome war. In fact, the media wasn't always against the war. The media probably didn't shift public opinion in this case, but instead public opinion shifted on its own and brought the media with it. Yeah, I mean, that can certainly be said to be true when you had atrocities like the My Lai Massacre that were being relayed to the home front. Um, right. If, if you need more context for that, you know, listener, you could definitely look into that. But that was essentially an incident where American troops went into a, a village and slaughtered everyone there because Vietnam was a war where a lot of the soldiers didn't wear uniforms. And so these soldiers had gotten so paranoid that these people, anybody could be a member of the Viet Cong that they massacred a village full of innocent people. And so this was being displayed on TV screens across America. Um, there's a lot of really great podcasts that you can watch. And I think there's one, one of those famous um, Vietnam movies. Kevin, help me out. I don't know if it was like We Were Soldiers or something like that. Um, I, think it was the sure. Mel, I think it was the Mel Gibson one. Um, maybe we'll put it in the description of the episode that kind of almost right. did a like recreation of that without saying that it was the Mila Massacre, but kind of showing you how the soldiers kind of broke down from like people to just savages that could do something like that. Right. So, yeah. So the media was not what shifted public opinion, but instead public opinion was what shifted the media. Exhaustion with the conflict coupled with the events of 1968, which we're going to discuss shortly, would lead to a drastic change in public's perception of the war. But before then, both the media and much of the public viewed Vietnam as a noble anti-communist effort. A Gallup poll asking Americans whether or not they thought sending troops to Vietnam was a mistake or not found majority support for the war until late in 1967, when the mistake crowd overtook the not-a-mistake crowd. And Walter Cronkite, the icon of jerk journalistic integrity, came about as close as he could to breaking neutrality by praising Johnson's actions during the Tonkin Gulf crisis. Now, another important but poorly understood factor in home front support for the war were the student radicals. And groups like the Students for a Democratic Society did see their membership explode in the mid-60s. And as a result, they drew enormous attention to their movement, becoming one of the most vocal early critics of the war. But even at the height of their power, the SDS represented a fractional percentage of the youth in America. And only 2 to 3% of college students actually called themselves activists during this time period, and only 20 or so percent had ever participated in any kind of demonstration. 
And moreover, hyperfixation on student movements does serve to underplay the fact that the war was opposed on all sides. Poor and working class Americans were not, in fact, the silent majority that supported the war while the pampered crybullies threw temper tantrums over it. Surveys tended to show that the highest rates of support actually came from young, well-educated people, while women, minorities, the elderly, and the working class had higher rates of opposition to the war. So much to the chagrin of Marxist professors, the universities were not, in fact, breeding grounds for radical anti-war activists. But still, it's kind of hard to deny the impact that student groups had on popular perception of the war. If nothing else, these groups served to galvanize those Americans who did support the war because they made the alternative seem so horrifying. Tom Hayden, for example, who helped to found the SDS, traveled with several other activists to Hanoi to show their support for the NLF and for Ho Chi Minh. Um, and for context, this would be basically like a radical group in 2005 traveling to Afghanistan to meet with the Taliban and Osama bin Laden. Like it, It's a pretty crazy thing to do, and it definitely set people off. And at their rallies, these student radicals would carry communist iconography, showing an admiration for people like Karl Marx, Mao Zedong, and Che Guevara. And they were pictured in the media all across the U.S. with their colorful chants ringing out and signs with popular anti-war slogans. I'm sure listeners have seen images of this before. Some of the classics, as far as like their chants and their um, slogans go, include um, ho, ho, Ho Chi Minh, the NLF is gonna win. And hey, hey, LBJ, how many kids did you kill today? And of course, everyone's favorite is the sign that read, LBJ, pull out like your father should have done. That's a classic. Yeah. <laughs> but these groups, it's important to keep in mind, didn't drive policy, and nor did they drive public opinion. LBJ carried on with the war regardless of what student groups were saying or thinking at Columbia University or anywhere else for that matter, and Americans carried on supporting him until, of course, they didn't. Yeah, and, and I feel like I, I'm referencing so many things in this episode. Um, by the way, the movie that depicted a version of the Milai Massacre was Platoon. Um, but you mentioned Tom Hayden, and he did a pretty awesome thing to protest the Vietnam War. If you watch the trial of the Chicago... Seven. Seven, right. Um, he's Sasha Baron Cohen, who plays Boyan, is also in that. And he's, he's really he's really good in it, um, which is kind of interesting. But Tom Hayden at the I believe it's at the end of the trial when he had the opportunity to speak and just kind of say his closing remarks, just started listing the names of all the people that have been killed in Vietnam. I don't know if it was either that day or if it was overall in the war, and he just went on and on and on. And it was pretty powerful, at least in the dramatization of it that i saw in the movie yeah like you might not agree with these guys like glorifying like mao zedong or something but you got to admit to a certain extent they were kind of right about a lot of this stuff yeah and the fact that they were willing to just set their lives and livelihoods to the side and just 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 risk it all in order to protest this is kind of kind of just shows their their courage you got to admire their commitment to it yeah so let's move on to what is perhaps the most significant event of the war that came in early 1968, which is the Tet Offensive. So while American support at home for the war was waning on its own, the Tet Offensive and the publicity that it received may have been the last blow or the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back to American confidence in the foreign policy establishment's campaign in Vietnam. 
Just to break down the language a little bit here, the word tet is short for tet nagayan dan. Hope I said that right. Which means festival of the first morning of the first day. And the colloquial term tet just means festival. Tet is the celebration of the Vietnamese New Year, and it's regarded as the most important holiday in Vietnamese culture. The festival is celebrated at the beginning of the Vietnamese calendar, which usually corresponds with early February or late January on the Gregorian calendar. In 1968, the first day of Tet fell on January 30th. And since the first day of Tet is traditionally spent with one's immediate family or praying to one's ancestors, it was more than reasonable for U.S. forces to be at ease, to kind of chillax a little bit. And this expectation was made virtually certain by a seven-day truce that was agreed to by Hanoi, which was supposed to take place from January 27th to February 3rd. And this would allow for both sides to give recreational time to their forces. And of course, if you're on the North Vietnamese side or anybody who celebrates Tet, this festival, you know, time to enjoy that, spend time with your family. But the U.S. military leadership knew that it was the calm before the storm, essentially. Lieutenant General Frederick Wayland had become suspicious of Viet Cong activities since early January, and he had asked General Westmoreland for more troops to be sent to the Capitol Military District at Saigon. The week before Tet, Wayland invited two reporters into his headquarters and told them that a major attack was coming. Quote, just before or just after Tet. He said he assumed the Vietnamese had too much respect for the holiday to attack during Tet. The attack Wayland anticipated came early in the morning, 2.45 a.m. on January 30th. A hole was blasted in the wall surrounding the American embassy in Saigon, and 19 Viet Cong commandos poured into the gaping entrance they had just created with their guns blazing. They tried to smash through the heavy embassy door, and upon failing to do that, they hid behind large concrete flower pots and shot rockets at the building. The battle lasted six hours, and all the Viet Cong commandos were either killed or badly wounded from the attack. Five Americans and one South Vietnamese lost their lives in the attack. But those six hours were only just the beginning. Within just a few hours, the NLF would attack five major cities, 64 district capitals, 36 provincial capitals, and 50 hamlets. The Tet Offensive was an extraordinary offensive campaign that Hanoi had been planning since late 1967 that was designed to spark uprisings across the South, leading to the overthrow of the government in Saigon. The Tet Offensive, as it would come to be called, would last several weeks or several months depending on how you count it, and it would claim tens of thousands of lives. During the attack, the Viet Cong seized the former capital city of Hue and armed with lists of, quote, cruel tyrants and reactionary elements, they went house to house, door to door, massacring their enemies. These, quote, tyrants included U.S. agents, priests, and in one case, even a janitor who'd worked in a government office. The victims were shot, clubbed to death, and in some cases, even buried alive. The remains of these roughly 3,000 people would be recovered for months and even years to come. The Viet Cong waved their flag over Hue for 25 days until the U.S. was able to reclaim the city after days of artillery bombardment that left the city a mere skeleton of its former self. Upon the discovery of the mass graves of the quote-unquote reactionary elements, the victors responded in kind with reprisals, assassinating many suspected communists. The Tet Offensive was ultimately a failure, 
the northern forces expected to surprise the enemy and cause political instability that might favor Ho Chi Minh. But ultimately, no such political instability came from the attack, and more than 40,000 soldiers, representing over half of the force involved in the attack on the Viet Cong side, were killed in the campaign. However, it was difficult for the U.S. to declare victory, since every report that the American people were getting from President Johnson had seemed to be optimistic and was indicating that the war was nearly over, so then how could they have been taken off guard in such a huge and catastrophic way? Perhaps the best characterization of the American people's reaction to the Tet Offensive came from America's favorite news anchor, Walter Cronkite, who, upon hearing the news, was thrown into a fit of rage. He said, quote, What the hell is going on? I thought we were winning the war. And in one sense, they were. Only a thousand Americans had died in the Tet Offensive compared to the enormous losses sustained by the NLF. But the Tet Offensive led many Americans to question what this victory would actually entail and how many more Americans would need to die in order to achieve it. The escalation in Vietnam was beginning to tear America apart, especially by the time the Tet Offensive happens. And LBJ, as the figurehead of America, was coming apart at the seams as well. The worse things got in Vietnam, the more obsessed he became. He first became angry at the anti-war activists, who he saw as a bunch of hypocritical trust fund babies attacking something they didn't understand. He became convinced that the anti-war movement had become infiltrated by communists who were acting on directions from abroad, maybe from the Russians or the Chinese or something, or maybe even the Vietnamese. And as a result, he had the CIA spy on them which was arguably illegal, since the CIA isn't really supposed to conduct domestic surveillance. And this became known as Operation Chaos, and some 7,000 Americans were spied on under this program. Some of the groups that Chaos gathered information on include the Black Panther Party, Students for a Democratic Society, Women's Strike for Peace, the Jewish group B'nai B'rith, and this one surprised me the most, the Israeli embassy as well. For this one, the CIA purchased a garbage collection company to collect documents from the Israeli embassy that were to be destroyed. So they went pretty hard at uh, going after the Israeli embassy for whatever reason. Um, George H.W. Bush would later admit that, quote, the operation in practice resulted in some improper accumulation of material on legitimate domestic activities, unquote which is a very diplomatic way of saying that it was a flagrant violation of the law. LBJ also grew increasingly frustrated with the press, as well as prominent political figures like Martin Luther King Jr., and of course his best-ish buddy, Robert Kennedy. In the end, he came to loathe and distrust anyone who raised doubts about the conflict. He became skeptical of members of the National Security Council, and even McNamara, who had at one point been the president's biggest supporter when it came to the war. Johnson only trusted his most fervent sycophants, the people who wouldn't dare question him, the bold and powerful leader who had trampled the Republicans in 1964 and who had transformed the country in just a few short years, was now terrified of anything resembling criticism. General Westmoreland, who wanted to maintain support for the war, would bring LBJ these overly optimistic accounts of what was going on, and then he'd ask for more troops and more funding, two things that were becoming increasingly difficult to provide. And yet, despite all of this, Johnson could not shield himself from the reality of what was going on in Vietnam, nor did he really want to. 
He became obsessed with monitoring the news and the death tolls. He had several TVs put in the Oval Office, his bedroom, and his ranch in Texas. And when he stayed at his ranch to get away from it all, he would put an earpiece in while he walked about his property so that he could get more updates. He followed the death toll carefully, sometimes entering the operations room at 4 or 5 in the morning to check the casualty numbers, and then he'd weep over the letters he signed to families who lost their children in Vietnam. The stress was literally eating him alive. He couldn't sleep at night, and when he wasn't checking the casualty number, he'd sneak off with Secret Service in the middle of the night to a small Catholic church where he'd pray and read scripture with a group of monks. LBJ later said that he knew the conflict in Vietnam was going to destroy his domestic agenda. He said, quote, If I left the woman I really loved, the great society, in order to get involved in that bitch of a war on the other side of the world, then I would lose everything at home, all my programs, all my hopes to feed the hungry and feed the homeless, all my dreams, unquote. But LBJ would not lose. That was his defining characteristic but it was also his fatal flaw. He refused to be the president who allowed Vietnam to fall to communism, and that determination destroyed his presidency and his legacy. The war in Vietnam didn't just destroy the LBJ administration. It also arguably destroyed American faith in government institutions, and arguably that faith has not been restored to date. An entire generation witnessed the foreign policy establishment throw its weight behind a conflict that was lost from day one and many of those people would come to resent the elites in their own government. Now, as the election of 1968 approached, LBJ was in rough shape. He had been under unimaginable stress, and his health was beginning to fail him. He actually commissioned an actuarial study in secret to see how much longer he might live, and the, the report when it came back said that he'd lived to the age of 64, which might not have even been long enough to survive a second term. And this report, of course, turned out to be prophetic since he died in 1973 at the age of 64. So it turned out to be basically right. Now, despite his public rhetoric, LBJ had actually doubted himself before. In the lead up to his massive landslide in 1964, he had told several of his close advisors that he was going to withdraw from the race. And he had even begun drafting a speech explaining why he would not accept the nomination again. But now with his health failing and his popularity numbers waning, LBJ was this time really beginning to wonder whether he could actually even win a second term. And if he did, would it be good for him? And would it even be good for the country? Next time on the Almost Presidents podcast, the 1968 presidential race kicks off. With so many critical issues on the table, will LBJ run again in order to redeem himself? Or will someone else ascend to the White House to attempt to find a solution to the many ills plaguing America, both domestically and abroad? Also, why is it taking Bobby Kennedy so damn long to decide whether or not that American savior could be him? All this and more on the next episode of the Almost Presidents podcast. Thank you for listening. We hope that you enjoyed the show. Okay, and if you're still with us, you know what time it is. It is time for our book recommendations of the month. So, Kevin, what do you find yourself reading this month? So this month I'm reading a book called Reign of Terror, How the 9-11 Era Destabilized America and Produced Trump by a guy named Spencer Ackerman. It's a really good, I guess, rounding out of the war on terror and particularly, I guess, focused around the period between like 2001 when the World Trade Center was hit 
you know, into Obama's presidency. I haven't finished it yet, but it takes you right up until Trump. Um, and it's it's just, you know, it's interesting. Some of the, I think the guys, personally, I think the guy who writes it is a little bit partisan, but I mean, you know, I guess everyone is. And uh, yeah, it's just, it just talks a lot about how the media sort of manufactured consent, how politicians, even sort of more liberal leaning ones, went along with a lot of pretty horrific and horrible stuff. That's a fascinating premise. Can you repeat the title of that book? Because it seems like he lays it all out there, almost like his thesis statement for the yeah, it's it's really yeah. The, the subtitle is a is really a thesis statement almost. It's how yeah. the nine eleven era destabilized America and produced Trump. And wow. I mean, I'm not up to the yeah, I'm not up to the Trump point yet. My guess is really like where he's going. And I listened to this book came out like maybe a year and a half ago, and I listened to a bunch of interviews with him at the time. I think maybe the direction he's going is that you know, the sort of cynicism and the skepticism of institutions that kind of defines the Trump era and the Trump movement, it really comes from the fact that basically all of these, you know, quote unquote experts and all of these, you know, leaders of institutions and these major like faces of institutions basically outright lied to us in some cases and essentially tried to manipulate people into pretty despicable things like torture and the killing of civilians in a lot of cases. It's a very good, um, a good kind of like rounding out of that era. I actually watched Zero Dark Thirty quite recently, and that kind of plays on a lot of what you were just talking about there, because I expected that movie to just be another movie about American exceptionalism and this heroic hunt for Osama bin Laden. We finally get him. But it really did show the nasty sides of torture that that Americans were committing against people that they had captured who they were trying to get information out of. And I, I, I was genuinely impressed because I wasn't expecting that out of that movie. But I, yeah, I love I love books like that where the author just sets out with this gutsy premise and you sit there, you open up page one and you're like, you know what? Prove it. I, I, I want to go on this adventure with you. Prove it. And, and if they're convincing enough, sometimes they could get you to buy in. It reminds me of 1983. Mankind on the Brink, I think, was the subtitle where he proposes that 1983 brought the world most. Uh, brought it the world the closest to a nuclear disaster than the 60s ever did. And Interesting. I, I think he got me. I'm still kind of puzzled. It, it's one of those books that sticks with you that you just think about. It'll just suddenly pop into your brain and you'll, and you'll think about it. I don't know if he got me, but he definitely got me thinking. So I, I, lo- yeah, I, I mean, love books this like one, that. This one, to be honest, like there are some things I disagree with him on. Like sometimes I, I think he doesn't emphasize enough that the reason that politicians like John Kerry and like Joe Biden went along with the war on terror was largely because the population went along with it, right? Like if they didn't go along with it, they would have been completely trounced and like kicked out of office because Americans were so on board with the shit at the time. And I think sometimes he doesn't emphasize that enough, not to necessarily defend those politicians, but I think it's a, it's a piece that you really need to emphasize is that, you know, Americans were unanimous on this uh, on the war on terror, really. Yeah, I think Absolutely. he Absolutely. makes a pretty convincing argument. And I, I don't I don't know if you can really fully disagree with that. At least I couldn't. I can even vaguely remember being a kid and buying into that whole thing. The whole war on terror idea, the whole, of course, we have to go to into Iraq. Of course, there are these WMDs. Of course, we have to hunt Osama bin Laden and do whatever it takes in order to get him. I do vaguely remember that. Yeah, for sure. You know, I mean, we were young, but I guess it was just sort of like it was so 
it was it was like the air you were breathing. Like it was so obvious and so clear that this was the way things ought to be and this was the way that we ought to act. And yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that's a piece that is is missing. Like sometimes it's really convenient to blame people above and certainly they deserve more blame than ordinary citizens, but also a lot of people bought into it because they were afraid. You know, they they sort of like were captured by fear. Yeah. So then I guess we're both reading books that have to do with current events because I picked up a message from Ukraine by Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky. And the only book I've read like this, and I'll explain what I mean by this, is Greta Thunberg's book, her first book that came out, just in the sense that both of these books aren't books, they're collections of speeches. So out of the hundreds of speeches that Volodymyr Zelensky made upon becoming president, and then in the wake of Russia's war against Ukraine, he consolidated speeches in a certain order of certain subject matter. And that's what the book is. So it really is something to read. I read a speech recently that he gave to the UK back when Boris Johnson was still in charge of things, where he quoted Winston Churchill at them using that whole, we'll, we'll fight them on the beaches, we'll fight them in the air. That, I'm, I'm misquoting it, but that whole speech. But a lot of these speeches, man, they really pack a punch. And it's been a really interesting book to read, especially side by side with this biography of Putin that I'm reading. And additionally, the biography of Gorbachev that I'm reading, you're kind of seeing how a lot of these pieces fall together. But it's, it's very difficult not to look at Volodymyr Zelensky as someone who's not incredibly courageous. I, I would even consider him a hero. But yeah. I, don't, I don't know. I don't know how this whole thing is going to turn out. So it's 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 a great book, though, and it's really giving me a sense of this guy's perspective as he's trying to lead his people through something so horrifying. Yeah, I've always thought that it's so interesting the way Zelensky really has done so well as a media figure, and I guess it, it's because he was an actor, and it it kind of feels like Putin. Maybe this is just my weird way of thinking of it, but it feels like Putin is like the dark side of social media. You know, he basically paid for what, what was it, the Internet Research Agency to just go online and fuck with people. <laughs> and now you have this guy Zelensky who has really used social media and the Internet and all that sort of thing to sort of turn the tides against Putin and to garner support for his cause. It's it's pretty impressive. I do think he's a remarkable leader. He is. And it seems like he knows his place too. He's the guy who's looking to make the cause known, make it known that he's just one of the Ukrainian people. He's not any different than any of them. And he's going to do whatever he can to garner support from the nation. There was even this particularly interesting moment in one of his speeches where he was talking to Russians saying, look, this is your country. You need to do something about this. This is not right. This is clearly not right. You're being led. You're, you're being misled rather by leaders who do not have your best interests at heart, who want to destroy a country that's done nothing wrong to them, and you need to do something about So it was, it was it was very interesting because you don't often see that, right, where the leader will address the quote-unquote enemy, but he made it clear that he doesn't view these Russians as the enemy of if they're going to stand up and do something. So it's a really interesting book. It's really short, too. I'm almost finished with it, and I would definitely recommend it for anybody trying to understand where the president's head is at as far as the conflict goes, and also being able to just read speech by speech how he is conceptualizing 
these events that are taking place on the ground in this country. So it seems like we've had a common thread of war throughout a lot of this podcast and then in our book recommendation section. Do we want to take us out on a lighter note, Kevin? Yeah, let's do it. So lastly, let's keep it short this month since last month's was so damn long. Oh boy, it was long. Look at all this shit that's going on in the world right now. All the shit that we were just talking about. Ukraine, results of the war on terror or whatever. Would you even want to be president in all this mess? Why don't you do yourself a favor and take advantage of this cop-out? That way, you don't embarrass yourself when you run for president and just get demolished. Because is that something you really want to happen to you? Really? Before you head out, feel free to subscribe and rate us. Leave a friendly comment on the way out. It really helps the podcast when you do. And if you enjoy what we're doing, you can find our Twitter or Instagram in the description below. We'll keep you updated about the show, and we'll also fill your feed with plenty of good old-fashioned memes. Follow us on Facebook as well if you're a Facebook person. Just type The Almost Presidents Podcast into that search bar. And lastly, you can write into the show. Our Gmail is thealmostpresidentspodcast at gmail.com, which you can also find in the description.